Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Deb with uh, Media Night Radio. It's been a while, but uh, I am welcoming to the airwaves Adam Scorgi, uh, the producer of the new film documentary, Ice Guardians. Adam was born on June 14, 1980 in Trail, British Columbia, Canada. He is a producer and actor known for The Union, The Business Behind Getting High, 2007, The Good Son, The Life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini, and The Culture High. We will discuss with Adam today his new film, Ice Guardian, which deals with the National Hockey League's infamous position on the ice titled The Enforcer. Let's get right to it. Let's welcome to the air, Adam Scorgi. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Now, did you play hockey in British Columbia? And if so, what position did you play? See, uh, yeah, I did. I played hockey when I was really young, but not in BC. I played in Alberta. I was born in BC, and then I lived in Alberta when I was young, and then I kind of fell completely, you know, at the age I played was like six, seven, eight. So I was only, you know, you play, I think, every position. You're just kind of, you right. know, ants chasing a piece of food. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, but it, it's it's kind of like how this all, the circle of how we got into Ice Guardians is I, I moved overseas when I was seven. I moved to Australia and then lived in Singapore. And I'd totally oh, fallen out of any interest with hockey. I didn't watch it. I didn't play it. I didn't care about the sport. And then when I came back to Canada and I was going to high school in Kelowna, um, I went to school with Scott Parker and Todd Fedorik, two very well-known enforcers, and watching them climb through the ranks of the WHL in that role and making their dreams come true to play in the NHL by embracing that role was what made me decide and want to partner with Brett Harvey and make Ice Guardians. Wow. Okay. So let's get let's get into the film then. Um, first of all, uh, being a longtime hockey fan, the film is a great behind-the-scenes look into the world of hockey and the role that the enforcer plays on the ice. It, it has great, great insight. What was the inspiration behind this film uh, besides, like, you wanted to make it because you saw your friends being enforcers, but what – what was it that made you want to bring it to the attention of the public? Well, it was, you know, like I said, after going to school with Parker and Fedoric, I really saw how these guys were painted with a brush, right? That they were looked mm-hmm. at as big dummies that didn't belong and they couldn't skate and they shouldn't be able to play hockey. And they were taking a roster spot of somebody, you know, more worthy, which couldn't be further from the case. And I think, you know, director Brett Harvey and Ice Guardians does a great job of showing just how important these guys were to their teammates, their organization, and their teams outside of fighting. You know, the average fan looks at an enforcer, and they only see the fighting aspect, right? Right. Which, if you understand the dynamics of the game, certainly has a value. But these guys meant so much more to their teams. As Brett Hall says in the film, that he said, I would not have been the prolific scorer I was if guys like Tony Twist and Kelly Chase didn't have my back. I can tell you that right now. You know, so and and just you know, he, you know, what really moved me about these guys and what I wanted to see is that a lot of these enforcers were great players when they were younger. Like Joey Kosher mm-hmm. was one of the best players coming out of Saskatchewan, and Wendell Clark, his cousin, will contest that, saying like Joey Kosher was highly touted by everybody. He's like, but then when you get to that world stage and you're competing with the best 800 in the world, 
you're not right. going to be to fit on a team. You're not going to be, you know, not everybody can be the leading scorer. So you have to adapt your role to become a great teammate. And to me, that's what was so compelling about the enforcers. Even if you're not a hockey fan, here's somebody that loves hockey so much that they're willing to take physical harm on their body to try to make that roster spot and better their team and better their organization. To me, that just compassion for the game and that, you know, willingness to succeed no matter what, I thought that was so moving and it made me and the team want to look into this further. Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, obviously the term enforcer has always had a a negative connotation to it. They're called goons, they're called this, they're called that. Do you believe that this film will change the mindset of people to understand the importance of the enforcer on the ice? I certainly know it will. We've already had that at screenings of people that were, you know, super anti-fighting and didn't like the violence in the sport where, you know, uh, Kevin Westgard had a childhood friend and so did Kelly Chase, uh, a, a, a lady that had been a friend of his for two decades had come up after they had seen the film and said, you know, I was always proud of your accomplishments in hockey. I never liked that you fought and that that's how you made your accomplishments. But now I understand why you did what you did. And that's ultimately, you know, what Ice Guardian's goal was. It's not here to glorify fighting and it's not here to put a negative spin on it. And if you notice in the film, there's no narration. So the producers and the director, we never pushed our narrative, which has always Mm -hmm. been the problem any other time the Enforcer story has been covered, is that somebody is pushing their narrative, right, on the players. And this is what should happen. And this is what we let the players tell their story and say, you know, even one of the questions was like, what would you like people to learn about the story of Enforcers? And a lot of these guys are like, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and ice guardians is really their voice because whether you agree with fighting in hockey or not, the thing that nobody can argue is that fighting and the guys that did it have a huge part of hockey's history and their yeah. story needs to be honored and told just like Wayne Gretzky, just like Sidney Crosby or anybody else. Cause they are part of the sports history. And that's what ice guardians is, is telling that part of hockey's history. That is, and it is done so incredibly well. Uh, In the film, (laughs) you're welcome. In the film, you speak with several players with, you know, from the NHL teams about their experience as the enforcer for their team. What do you feel was the most surprising thing you discovered making this film documentary? Um, well, the, the most surprising, like if I'm going statistic wise, the most surprising thing for me was how, you know, less than 5% of concussions are coming from fighting. The mm-hmm. 95% are coming from the speed of the game and the body checks, which have now turned into collisions. That was super right. shocking for me. Like I was really, you know, and to find out from the players, right? Because I've heard from fans, even when we were making Ice Guardians, people would be like, ah, I don't like seeing the fights, but I love a good clean body check. And I was like, well, would you be interested to know that the players find a good, clean body check much more violent and they're more scared of that? And then the average fan's like, what? What are you talking about? I'm like, Wendell Clark put it best. And it's not in the film, but it's in a bonus clip that's releasing here in the coming weeks where he said, I never looked at it a fight as that violent because at least with a fight, me and another grown adult were agreeing to that level of violence. We're saying, you want to go, you want to go? And we drop the gloves and we agree to that level of violence. Right. I'm skating up the ice and I turn my head, and the guy hits me with a clean body check, not suspendable, perfectly clean, shoulder to chest, 
but that shoulder makes my head snap, which causes a concussion because you don't need a direct blow to the head to cause a concussion. It's just the brain rattling within your skull. He's like, and you knock me out for a season, my career, or, you know, 10 games. I didn't agree to that body check, right? He's like, at least with a fight, I was given the opportunity to agree to that level of violence. And I was like, man, this is one of the greatest power forwards ever. And I'd never thought about it that way where he's like, so to me, I always thought the body checking was much more violent than the fights. That's really, that says a ton in hockey. It's wow. funny when I would present that to people that would say that beforehand, they're like, I hate, a, I hate the fighting, but I love a good clean body check. And I would explain what Wendell explained to me. Their look of bewilderment is like, because it's funny how people are okay with that level of violence. They're like, well, mm-hmm. I love the body checking. And you're like, okay, but that would be assault too if it was on the street, right? And actually oh, the players, yeah. now, that they, now that they can go 35 miles an hour and the equipment they're wearing is 40% bigger, the players are much more concerned about that. And that's why you're seeing now, when even if there's a clean hit and it's open ice on a superstar, you see the whole team go after that guy. Because yep. they're trying to set a precedence that you – and people are complaining about that. They're like, I hate that stuff. And they're like, it's a clean hit. It shouldn't be an issue. I'm like, yeah, but when these guys are your brothers that you're sharing a room with and you're traveling with for years and they become like your family, if you saw one of your family members get taken out, whether the, clips, the, the hit's clean or not, you're going right. to come to their aid. Otherwise, I wouldn't really want to be on your team. You know, you right. want a team – if you're going to win the Stanley Cup, you want a team that's going to bleed and be there for you. So if you see one of your teammates that's like a family member at yard sale, even if the hit's completely clean and within the rules, you, you should come to make sure he's okay and mm-hmm. to defend your team and defend your team's honor. So you're seeing a lot of that now in the game because, you know, the reforcers are – there's very few of them left, and now the game's getting so fast and the hits have turned from body checks to giant collisions. Yes, Absolutely. Um, do you feel that there was a common element that all the players you interviewed for the film believed, like a common thread that, that ran, ran through all of the enforcers, what they believed? The only common thread was the enforcers. And I think as Kevin Westgarth kind of says it good, he's like, every, he's like, everyone tries to look for that common thread of what is an enforcer, but that you find that they're all different individuals. But the mm-hmm. one common thread that they do have is that willingness to sacrifice themselves for the betterment of their team. Mm-hmm. And Wes Garth, I think, puts it brilliantly in the film, but he says that's why often a call-up comes for an enforcer. It's not that they want him to fight, but they want that element of here's a guy that might not have the best talent, but he has a passion and a drive to do whatever it takes to help his team. And teams want that in their dressing room. They want that in their workouts. They want that on their team. They want that kind of support being like, look, here's a guy that will do anything to get a roster spot. You know, and a lot of times they kind of go to their first round draft picks or superstars being like, man, if you had one tenth of his heart with your talent, you could be in the Hall of Fame. But you don't. So sometimes they want that in the dressing room to bring that team element of this is what it takes to be a team is it takes everybody working together and sacrificing, committing hard. Nobody wins. Nobody has success at anything without really grinding and doing, you know, working hard. You know, although that sounds cliche, it is true. And that's ultimately, you know, the only through line I found with these guys is that they love the sport so much that they were willing to take, you know, severe body damage, looked at as like, you know, by the media often as dummies that don't belong there. They're willing to risk all that for two minutes of ice time a game. And that's why I keep saying no matter where the game evolves to, I really hope that that element of passion and what these guys brought to their teams and their organizations on top of the fighting that that is not lost in the game because I really think hockey, it'll be, be a huge detriment to hockey if that is lost from the game. 
which leads into the next question. Um, do you believe that if fighting is taken out of hockey, it will actually become worse and there will be more injuries and cheap shots? It's really interesting to see. I mean, the players believe that. And, you know, I, don't, I'm, I never played at that top level to know. But interesting in our discoveries that we interviewed uh, criminologist Victoria Silverwood, and she followed the U.K. teams, and she also interviewed a lot of guys from the Swiss teams and the, the, the teams in other parts of Europe where they don't allow the fighting. Right. And the players that had played in both leagues had said they felt way safer in the U.K. league where fighting is allowed. You know, and there was a poll done not too long ago, I think it was 2012 or 2013, the CBC interviewed 1,000 NHL players and said, do you want fighting removed? And it was an outstanding 98.8% of the players said no, they want fighting to stay. So mm-hmm. I don't have an answer because I haven't done, you know, we can only do so much research. They haven't really done enough stats on that. But, you know, I will say just looking, if you look at this season, and this is the first season that there's all, almost all the pure enforcers were, are gone. There's maybe a handful of them left in the NHL. Well, it's the yeah. first year fighting's gone up in the last decade because now players are defending themselves. And the yeah. slashing this year that I've seen has been the highest I've seen. I mean, Sidney Crosby almost took the guy's finger off the other day. Uh, I think it was Eric Stone or whatever. He slashed his finger so bad right. he snapped it in half. Uh, Goudreau got slashed this year and broke his wrist. And, you know, he's a superstar. So, you know, I, I'm just seeing, I don't have the stats, but looking as a casual observer, I think the slashing has like the worst I've seen it in years this year. And it just happens to be the year that almost all the enforcers aren't there. And also fighting went up because more guys seem to be fighting their own battles now because they're sick of the liberties and hacks that have been taken on them. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what, I, what I've noticed is that the defense, the defensemen are definitely going after people that are going after the forwards as well. And yeah, well, uh, or you, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're exactly right. And also the defensemen getting creamed into the boards because their mm-hmm. wingers can't hold them up anymore too. It's, it's, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is, you know, uh, you know, with, like I said, enforcers are down, but fighting went up. So more guys are defending. And then, you know, concussions are staying right about the same because the big boogeyman, you know, no one's saying, and I, I want everyone listening to be clear on this, that, you know, that punches to the head and fighting are good. Obviously, there is injuries there, and we should still be cognizant of that and, sure. and make sure that guys are taking the appropriate things to recover and, and not get re-injured. But... You know, we put so much emphasis on the sport of hockey on fighting that they really haven't paid attention to the boogeyman, which is the speed of the game and the collisions. But if you think about it, that's a much tougher argument, right? It's way harder to say, hey, guys, maybe we've made the game too fast. And now right. that the body check is just like it's really crushing. Guys. Like, how do you put that back in the bottle? You can't say, hey, guys, you know what? Everybody loves this fast game now, and it's so quick and it's so fast. Maybe we made it too fast, and we put the players at such risk. We need to slow it down and maybe bring back clutching and grabbing. Like, no one's going to be okay with that answer, right? So yeah. it's you know. So now that you know, hopefully now that 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 can be exposed. This is something Bobby Orr has been bringing up a lot. Just being like, man, the game is too fast. Like the collisions now are just huge, and the and the pads they're wearing are they're like armor. You know, as we talk about in the film, Brett Hall says, he says, look, if you would have thrown a body check with the kind of shoulder pads that me and Brendan Shanahan and the other guys had, you'd never throw another body check again because it hurts. Right. He's right. like, we had these thin pads. He's like, the guys now have like this giant plastic armor and they can lunge themselves into guys. And as long as they don't come off their feet, it's considered a clean hit as long as it's not direct 
contact to the head, but you can still get a concussion. And then now right. there's not even any repercussions. You know, a no. third, fourth line guy can do that to your superstar all game. And if your team retaliates, then it's just, no, you get the additional penalty. You get the instigator. Your team goes down. So it's, it's interesting to see, you know, where the game is going to evolve to and what's going to happen. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> no, I, no, none of us do. But it, it's really interesting because this year we've seen more suspensions of hits here, hits there. Um, these aren't fights. These are hits. These are hits against the boards. These are hits mid, you know, mid ice. Um, and everybody is either getting suspended for two games, one game, fines. I've never seen this uh, this amount, this level of suspensions, though. Have you? Well, and and no, and it's a that's a great point, and something that's really interesting in suspensions, and it's why self policing of the game, you know, started in the game's history like over a hundred years ago, is because it's inconsistent. Right, like you'll see one guy that's a marquee player that I I don't want to name him because I know a lot of like that'll do a stick infraction to a guy. There's a there's a very well known defenseman that has sticked a guy in the face twice, and he's oh, got yeah. only two games. Right, we don't yes. need to say his name because I know a lot of right twice. Everybody knows the first time. The first time he got one game, second game he got two games, and then you'll see a third line guy that's trying to make his place and he'll try to make a big hit. And the guy turns on him last minute, and you guess you could call it a boarding, but it's so hard because the game's so fast. And, you know, you're a young guy trying to make the team. You're trying to, you know, put your influence into the game. And if a guy turns on you when you're going 35 miles an hour, even if you try to stop, you're going to end up hitting him. And then he gets five to six games. And you're like, what? They're like, man, the guy turned on him last minute. And But that's the thing is it's inconsistent. I even asked this year because hooking to me and slashing – like I said, mm-hmm. the slashing has been horrible this year. Some yes. games they call the slightest tap, and they're like slashing, and I'm like, okay. And then other games, it's like, man, like I'll, I'll confess to being an Oilers fan. Like McDavid will get so hooked and held and held on the ground, and there's nothing. And I'm like, uh-uh. how is that not a penalty? And then another game, he'll hook somebody just slightly, and it'll be a penalty. So, like, I literally asked the friends of mine, what is the actual definition of hooking? Because if I'm an, I'm an avid fan, I watch the game, and I can't tell you because it varies from game to game. I cannot yes, tell you what I can't tell you what a slashing or hooking actually is because some games they call it and other games they don't, so I don't know. And that's why the game, you know, through this and that's why we had the human behavior specialist nice guardians, just because human behavior will like as much as you try to control it and regulate it and make it a sport, it still bears itself. And that's why hockey had self policing and teams sticking up for themselves because they got sick of leaving the decisions in the hands of somebody else, especially when it's the welfare of their team, which becomes like yep. a family, and they see their family getting abused. So as any good family should do, if your family is getting abused, you defend it. You stick up for it. And that's ultimately what happened in hockey in the role the enforcer was born. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that, that's happening more and more, too, is that the uh, officiating is inconsistent as well. And that oh, yeah. is that is driving – more cheap shots, that is driving more retaliation, that is driving all of this stuff is being driven because this wasn't called, but this is called. And this is called, but that's not called. And where do you go from there? As, you know, you're frustrated on the ice if you're down, you know, a couple goals because of this situation or you're in the penalty box and someone else isn't, you got problems. Yeah, it's it, you're you're you know that's what I've been noticing all years that it's 
it, it is an interesting dynamic. And you, then you look at guys like, you know, um, Max Domi, you know, he broke his hand. He was sick of getting hacked and slashed and he went yes. and defended himself and then he broke his hand. Right. And then there's a young talent that's out for the year and people are like, well, you shouldn't be fighting. And then, but Max is like, man, well, I'm sick of getting hooked and slashed all games. Right. So right. I defended myself. I got sick of the bullshit. So, you know, it's interesting. Like I, I don't like it'd be really interesting to see where it goes. Cause I've seen this year to me, the slashing has just been gross of what's happened and star players have been knocked out for lengthy periods because of it too. Like Goudreau is a perfect example, you know, living in Edmonton and watching the, the Alberta teams a lot there was a young star, right? And he was out for half the season oh, yeah. because on the, and it was like the fifth slash too. Like there's three or four that got away and they were blatant and dirty, just hacks on the hand. And like the fifth mm-hmm. one snapped his wrist. Yep. Yeah. And, and no call. No, there's, there's no suspension. There's no, not even a penalty <laughs> called. Right. And he was knocked out for half the season. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they're also, what's happening also is they're holding sticks now. Yeah. They're, they're holding their sticks so they can't do anything. Yeah, these are all the things that enforcers and, and teammates and stuff had said for years, but, you know, fell on deaf ears. And now that they're all, but, you know, there's only a few of them left. And, you know, now it seems that the team toughness is working. And, you know, when people say, does it still work today, though, with the game? Again, I confess to being a diehard Oilers fan. And, you know, yes, McDavid is a generational talent. He's sensational. And, and Talbot at the goaltenders played fantastic. But something else that the Oilers have for the first time in decades is they have toughness. People yeah. forget how tough the dynasty team of the Oilers was. And actually a few oh. alumni brought that, a few alumni brought that up, you know, when there was the first comparisons, when all the draft picks were picked like Hall and Nuge, everybody's like, Oh, is this like the eighties? And it was some of the old alumni were like, not really. Because, like, yes, you have some young talent, but the old 80s teams, like, they had McSorley, Semenko, McClellan, Messier, yes. Hunter. Like, you did not come into Edmonton, and not only would they beat you on the scoreboard, if you went off the rails, they were happy to go off the rails with you, and they were a terrifying team. As Clark Gilly says in our film, that he's like, you know, if I really wanted to board Grexy, the opportunity was there. He's like, first of all, I just not that kind of player. I wouldn't do that. And two, he's like, I really didn't want to have to deal with Dave Semenko, Marty McSorley, Mark Murphy, <laughs> Kevin McClellan. He's like, that really was what I was looking forward to every time I played Edmonton. So exactly. And you see, and you see this year with Edmonton. Now they're finally having success and looking like they're gonna, you know, make it to the playoffs for the first time in a decade. And they right. have toughness. They have Lucic. They have Maroon. They have Cassian. They have Hendricks. They have Griba. They have Darnell Nurse. Like, they have a team that doesn't get pushed around on top of the talent. The previous 10 years, we had a lot of talent, but those youngsters got pushed around and intimidated really easily. And there's a lot of games where after after a hack or two or a big body check or two, they went silent. They're like, oh, we're not – we're scared. No one's going to defend us here. We have a teammate – we have a team that doesn't stick up for each other. These guys start running at us. We're going to get injured. So they would step back. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, uh, speaking of Wayne Gretzky, the great one, you you know, you mentioned in the film um, as not being traded to Los Angeles without Marty McSorley, who, you know, is a, a great guy. I knew him personally. He was he was wonderful. He was one of the most gentle people on the planet. And so when that happened in British Columbia, that was just a travesty. I think it was it was all wrong in so many yeah, ways. Yeah. But Anyway, um, he came with him in the trade. And do you think that, like, back then, that solidified the importance of enforcers 
and the role they play in hockey. I mean, not so much now because it's changed so much, but back then nobody would go anywhere without their enforcer. Yeah, well, that's a, that's why we put it in there is how important because that deal was like Rex made that happen. Like when he said, mm-hmm. not only am I not going, I'm not going. I think David Singer from Hockey Fights puts it perfect when he's like, not because the Kings were like, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but it was because Wayne Grexy's going, I'm not going without my Marty McSorley. So mm-hmm. especially to a new market, like at the time the Kings were pretty new and, you know, playing in that division was a, was a different thing. So, yeah, it really, you know, at the time, you know, they really saw that. And you saw that like lots, right? Like with, uh, you know, the Islanders had it and, you know, the Flames yes. had it. You had like many guys. You had Kosher with Iserman in them and you had Domi with Sundin and you had, it was a common thing then that the, the NHL is a very copycat league. So when one team <laughs> doesn't have success, everybody jumps in, you know, even not that long ago when the Anna, when the Anaheim Ducks won and they had Peros and they had the most fighting majors in the league that summer, I remember every tough guy was getting contracts. Like they signed George LaRock and Phoenix and McGratton got signed and Bugard got signed. That's right. They were signing everybody like crazy because they're like, well, look, the Ducks just won and they were the most, they had the most fighting majors and penalized team in the NHL and they won the cup. So we need to get tougher. Right. So right. The, the, the NHL is the biggest copycat league. And when other teams have success and other teams try to, copy that and do the same yeah oh yeah absolutely well and the the interesting thing about uh Gretzky bringing Marty with him was that Marty was a great player on the ice I mean what people don't understand is you can't stay in the NHL if you don't have talent you can't just be an enforcer you have to contribute to the game as well which they all do no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, that's why I think Kevin Westgarth puts it so great in the film that he says, you know, it, chances are, he's like, if you know a guy by his name, he's not a goon because that means he earned his place. If you know him by name and he played for several years and Kosher right. follows up in that section of the film and he says, yeah, there were guys that were maybe brought up for one game, one shift, couple games. Yeah, those guys you could maybe call a goon. He's like, but the guys that stuck around for two, three, four, five, six, ten years, were not goons. There's a reason why teams kept signing them and bringing them in there. They had a value to that organization. Right? Oh, and it's, you know, just typical uh, rude people that'll say like, oh, these guys don't belong. And I was like, well, you know, if you ask some of the greats that we interviewed in the film, they'll tell you something very different. And it's hard to argue. You know, it's funny because even like Brett Hall was asked after screenings. They're like, man, you say something very powerful. It's one of the, you know, leading goal scorers of all time. You say you would not have had that success without those guys. And then people are like, is that really true? And he's like, 100%. He's like, now that I'm off camera and I'm just telling you guys, even more so, he said that there was games where he got two or three goals quick and then he didn't have a tough guy and the game would get really rough and chippy and he'd stop because he was worried about what might happen because he didn't have anyone to look after him if the game got out of hand. Absolutely. Well, and, and what was so interesting also in the film was the way that they, they would, um, they would match up and then they would be like, no, let's not do it now. Can you wait until the second period? I mean, that's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and that and it's interesting because Wendell Clark speaks well about that where, you know, then you'd have people that were like purists of the game saying, well, I don't like the stage fighting. And, you know, Wendell brought it up when we were at the Toronto premiere and he said, you know, I understand that, but you have to understand when a guy, say a guy finally cracks the league and he gets a two to three year contract. Right, and, and now he signs the contract and he has to perform for his team, and then the yeah. rules change that summer. 
Yeah. Well, of course. He's like, and then that's how Riley Cote in the film says, okay, you're going to make rules, but there's ways around rules. So now, instead of putting our team offside, we're going to line up on a face-off after you do a cheap shot and say, hey, you have to answer the bell for what your teammate did. So you can either do it now or I'm going to, you know, run clean hits on your superstar all game. And then that's when they did it. So people are like, well, I don't like the stage fight. But if you understand, that was just the guys trying to adapt and stay relevant in the league with the constant rule changes. Then you're like, oh, I, I get it. Right. Like yeah. those are some of the discoveries of making the film that we're like, man, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. And I remember Parker put, put this really great too. And we said, you know, other than entertainment, I was like, well, what is the point if one enforcer fights another enforcer, you know, on the team when that guy wasn't the guy that committed, you know, the cheap shot of the crime. And Parker's like, here's the value. He's like, there's times when guys on my team would be playing on the edge of dirty. And then they're right. going to come over to me like, like Brashear or someone say, Hey, if you don't get number six in line, then I'm going to make you answer the bell for him playing like an asshole. And then Parker's like, then I would go to my own team and say, hey, stop playing like an asshole because then I'm going to have to fight Brashear. I don't really want to do that. And then they'd be like, oh, sorry, Parks. I'm just trying to, he's like, I know, like all of us, you're just trying to be effective. You're trying to stay on your team. You're trying not to get sent down. You're trying to be a good teammate, but play within the rules. Don't lift your elbows. Don't try to yard sale their superstars. Play within the rules. And I'm like, sorry, Parks. And then I was like, man, you would regulate your own bench. He's like, all the time. I try to get my own bench in line. Being like, hey, I really don't feel like fighting that bastard tonight. So get your shit together. Play a good game, but don't go off the rails. Because if you go off the right. rails, then I'm going to have to go with him. Right. And, that, and that's amazing. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you have one guy that is, like, telling the whole, the whole bench, okay, you guys are affecting whether I have to throw down. Yeah, and so you're, you're putting you, me in harm's way. Right? Exactly, exactly. And, Adam Oates, and then Adam Oates had actually said that in one of the other screenings that he said he made he made a point he made a point of saying that he would never play off the rails or dirty because he didn't want to put his teammates into harm's way that way. He made mm-hmm. he like, I always try to play a clean game because I you know love my teammates and I don't want to put him in that position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the interesting thing is, I, I don't know if anybody, uh, you know, this film really captures this, but one of the most touching things in the film was the film touches on the feelings of the players that are enforcers and what they go through emotionally. That's like, nobody thinks about that. No, that that's, and that's what I think did, you know, director Brett Harvey did so well is really letting you see the human behind the, you know, these enforcers that, you know, as one role, right. Even people, even analysts and teammates that had played with these guys for years came up to us after screenings was like, how did you get McGratton to open up about his addiction and his recovery? And how did you get, you know, Kelly chase to cry? And how did you, I'm like, because we're finally listening instead of pushing our own narrative. We just wanted to hear their story and let them share it in their words. Exactly, and and the the thing is, is that you found out that the enforcers don't necessarily they don't want to fight, and and if they have to fight, it 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 is a emotional like situation for them that they have to you know deal with once they go yeah. on the ice and they have to do it. it. It's not like they like doing it. No, it's just it's a job for them that they. I mean, other than Brian McGratton, he's the only guy that seems to really, truly love it. <laughs> but, you know, to, and he even says that in the film where he even says, like, that's why there's only a select few maniacs, I guess, out there that are willing to do it. But, uh, 
But, you know, a lot of guys, it's not so much the fight that they love, but who doesn't when you're getting celebrated by your peers and you feel the love from them? You know, again, that's something I think the director did so well of really showing you why these guys did what they did. Because when the people that you travel with and you spend 80% of the year with and they're friends, they become family. They're the ones at your wedding when you retire. When your family is celebrating you and, and, you know, showing you, you know, the accolades and everything for you defending the team, well, that is what made these guys get through it when it was tough, right? They're like, wow, my team loves me. This is my brotherhood. This is my second family. And when they're celebrating your violence and appreciate that you're putting yourself in harm's way for their betterment, that's what they, that's what these guys hung on to and why they did it for years that they did. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and how, you know, this is, this is a question. How nasty did it have to get in the lower ranks? you know, to become an enforcer in the NHL. I mean, I can only imagine. I mean, obviously enforcers were born because not everybody can be a forward. Not everybody can be a center. Not everybody can be a defenseman. Not everybody can be the the superstar of the team. So yeah. how nasty did it have to get in the lower ranks to actually make it to the next level, which was the NHL? It's tough, you know, and in the heydays of the enforcer, that's when I was going to high school, like Parker and Fedoric and those guys. I mean, the WHL was vicious back then. Like every team yeah. had two or three killers. And, you know, but, but even as Parker puts it, like I, I don't know if you can measure how vicious it got, but Parker puts it great where, you know, his last year in the WHL, he had 30 goals and 30 assists and like 400 penalty minutes. Like he had a great year, right? Yeah. And then he's like, but when I got to Colorado, like they didn't need a goal scorer. They had Sackick and Ray Bork and Peter Forsberg and Hayduke and Svatos. He's like, I knew that I wasn't going to be scoring goals. Like he's like, even if, even if I could have really worked hard and worked at my game, there's no way I'm going to make a line. Like I just won't. Like I'm just that's right. the team I'm on. So he's like, so what do you do? Is you adapt? And he's like, I knew what they brought me in there for. They brought me in there for toughness and to look after these guys. He didn't have to tell me. No coach had to tell. I knew. He's like, I knew. You had Forsberg. You had all these guys that are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Like. I'm not going to be on their line. So that's when Parker's like, okay. So he's like, in order for me to stay relevant and to keep a place on the team, I embrace the role that I saw was open. Rob Ray talks about the same thing. He's like, no one held a gun to my head and said, you have to be an enforcer. He said, I saw an opportunity to make a team and stay there with a role. So I took it. He's like, I embrace that role. And you can follow it down to almost every guy. Like they all wanted to, make it that way so i like yeah i don't know if you measure the level of the violence in the in the minor but i mean the league used to be really crazy in the 30s like there used to be stick work where they would just two-hand each other in the face and like it oh, you know wow. and that went you know as we talk about you see it in the one clip when we talk about uh, john ferguson as being like pretty much oh, the yeah. first enforcer right ferguson yeah. was brought in because the Montreal Canadiens were sick of the Toronto Maple Leafs beating them up. So they brought in Ferguson and Ferguson really showed that he's like, I'm not just fighting other guys that are tough. He fought everyone. Like he fought your goal scorer. If you cross the line and played on that dirty edge, he made you suffer for it. And he scared teams. And then that's when teams kind of saw they're like, Hey man, like Montreal didn't make the playoffs a few years because they were intimidated. Now they brought this in. So other teams, that's kind of where the, if you trace the historians, they kind of talk about that's where the arm race started. People are like, wow, that really worked for them. Well, like, let's us bring in someone that kind of makes the whole team morale feel tougher. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's amazing. It's, uh, th- this film, I think, has captured everything that hasn't been captured before. And 
really gives the audience a look into the human behind the enforcer as well as the importance of the enforcer on the ice. I hope it may bring back the enforcer into hockey because I think it's important because this year has definitely uh, made it very clear that there's a lot more splashing. There's a lot more boarding. There's suspensions all over the place. There's, I mean, this was not happening. We never heard about suspensions like 10 years ago. That would be a very like rare occasion. Now we're hearing it every time there's a game. Yeah, it's becoming that. And even hits that I, I think are clean. Sometimes people are just looking for an answer because a player got hurt. And you really yeah. look at it. You even hear the analysts being like, I don't really think this is suspendable, but because a guy got hurt, they're going to try to come up with something. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, um, it's, it's changing. It's, it's, it's been an interesting year. Oh, absolutely. Now, can you tell us about any upcoming projects that you are working on? Sure, I'm actually on set right now and getting kind of pulled away. We're working on uh, inmate number one, The Rise of Danny Trejo, and we're looking at his personal story. He has an amazing redemption story about how he's on three gas chamber offenses and, you know, turned his life around to get out of prison and, uh, you know, become one of the most successful Mexican-American actors of all time. We also oh, just wrapped wow. on um, Chasing Evil, The Life of Robbie Knievel, and him chasing his father's legacy of Evil Knievel. That one will be releasing this summer. So we are having... Um, you know, I've been, I've been blessed, you know, to truly have my dream job and be able to tell these incredible stories that um, I, I really wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to do anything else. So it, uh, I hope I can just continue to inspire the world in a positive way with uh, the documentaries I get to work on. Absolutely. Now, uh, are you doing any kind of premiere here in L.A. at all for, for... the Pride Garden? Ice yes, well, April, yeah, at April 8th, actually, we're doing one. It's going to be at the Regal Theater, uh, or the Regal Cinemas uh, in L.A. Live there, like right by the Kings. It's actually being put yeah. on by the Kings with all proceeds going to the Kings Care Foundation. Okay. And Are you going to be there? I will be there. And not only that, uh, Luke Robitaille, Kevin Westgard, Jared Stoll, and Matt Green are going to be doing the Q&A. So truly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity if uh, – you guys are available. There's still tickets available. Uh, they're going really fast. Even though it's a giant theater, like I'm impressed. The, the Kings have really been promoting this. I mean, it's for a great cause. Yeah. I'm flying down because when will I ever get to share the stage with Lou Robitaille and West Garth and all these legends, right? So <laughs> I am going to be there and be like that old Sesame Street song, like one of these things does not belong here. And it's the producer, but I'm going to be right in there being like, yep, yep, on stage with all of them. So... Uh, yeah, I will be there April 8th uh, with all those guys. I'm really looking forward to it. It is truly an honor, and it's one of those moments I take my producer hat off and just kind of pinch myself and just be a fan and be like, wow, this vision my team and I had eight years ago has led me to now share the stage with three Stanley Cup champions and an NHL Hall of Famer talking that's, about our work. That's amazing. That's, that's so great. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's so great. Um, well, I'm going to put this up on uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I will send you the link if you can put it up on Ice Guardians, um, this interview. Um, and uh, do you have – well, um, let me close out the show, and, and if you could just hold on for a second. I, I'd like to talk sure. to you just for a second. Um, sure. th- this will, this will uh, 
end our conversation with Adam Scorgi. Thank you so much for your time and taking with us. It was absolutely uh, insightful and uh, interesting as usual. Um, and everybody, my pleasure. Have Thanks a, for having me on. Absolutely, everybody have a great afternoon. Okay.